Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. It's hard to believe the school year's starting already. Mm. It really does fly, doesn't it? Yeah, fly a lot faster if you help me with these dishes. Carolyn, doing dishes is not a man's work. Charles, don't be sacrilegious. I'm not. Then you do believe in the Bible. Of course I believe in the Bible. What's I got to do with dishes? Second Kings 21, 13. And I will wipe Jerusalem as a man wipeth a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. Bible's by the bed. You can look it up. I don't have to look it up. I know you know your Bible. Dish towel's over there. I don't know if you could hear that. What a gem of a clip starting out today's show. Welcome to Trending with Little House on the Prairie. A little throwback there, Caroline Ingalls doing the dishes while Charles Pa says that's woman's work. And she breaks out the old second Kings 2113. What a move. And it works too. He goes and gets the dish towel. And so as you might guess, that is a little foreshadowing of today's show. Welcome to the program. Timory is off for today. It's Brooke Taylor back with you again on this blessed Lenten Friday. Looking forward to praying the family rosary across America with Father Rocky just about one hour from now. In the meantime, delighted to welcome to the program Lila Marie Lawler, wife, mother, grandmother, author, observer of the culture and the church, and a convert to the Catholic faith, which we will talk about. And Lila's books include The Little Oratory, which she co-authored, numerous articles for newsletters, and a three-volume work which we are going to focus on for the bulk of the show today. It's called The Summa Domestica, Order and Wonder in the Family Life. We'll talk about that again today. Lila Marie Lawler, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much, Brooke. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Do you remember that old Little House on the Prairie episode? Did you used to? Did you watch that at all with the kids or the family? <laughs> no, we didn't watch it. I had never heard that before. Well, I would say that that clip is that that episode there is fabulous and terrible. <laughs> yes. So it's fabulous because obviously the husband will help his wife and lend a hand and also it's a delight to be together in the kitchen and do the dishes together and no man worth his salt would ever say anything so stupid as i'm not washing dishes or changing a diaper or whatever because we're in it together it's a cooperation it's not a conflict um but of course there's and the spirited woman will say yes men do wash the dishes and quote the Bible. That's great. I didn't know about that. <laughs> That's wonderful. But I I would, as an older woman, I would take her aside and say, dear Carolyn, and I don't imagine Carolyn ever spoke to Charles this way, but I would say, you better watch your tone because <laughs> men don't like to be scolded. Um, and, you know, as if we're their mother, and you know what? Men can have their likes and dislikes, too. Women have our likes and dislikes about how we like to be talked to, and men do, too, and that's okay. 
let's make each other happy. Yeah, and that, I think, really sets up this whole conversation beautifully because we are going to talk about navigating those waters, vocation, family, domestic life, which is the the domestic church, the, the, the home, the church in miniature, and just how things have gotten so muddled and how this three-volume work that you have put together really beautifully acknowledges the complexities, but also lays out a roadmap to virtue and grace, charity, all of that. And so we're going to have a terrific time opening the pages of Summa Domestica, which of course is a nod to St. Thomas Aquinas. But before we get to that, I, I think it's important to emphasize that what we talk about here, which is the order and wonder in family life, housekeeping, home culture, education, is something that you emphasize that you're teaching to others, not because of what you had, which you know was a perfect domestic uh, model, but what you did not have, and it, it, that was it was not ideal. You say that yours is a journey of a girl who did not know how to sweep the floor, and instead, I know your background includes secular humanism, feminism, a lot of progressive ideology. I think atheism in there growing up, so maybe that would be a good place to start. Yeah, so a lot of, uh, I've even had comments left on the blog. I have written the blog for, you know, quite a number of years now. Who even knows how long? Probably, I don't even know. Um, <laughs> 15 or more. And, um, and that's what the book comes out of. And I've had people leave comments. Most people are, are, get it and they get where I'm coming from and they follow and they know my background, but some people don't and they'll say, you know, well, you you come from a place of privilege of having, um, you know, and then they make a list. And one of the things is, and none of the things are true. And one of the big things is, you know, you grew up that way, you grew up with a model or you had this kind of life. And that is definitely not true. My parents were divorced when I was very young. I um, was you know, to to a great extent, as a little child, I was neglected, alternately neglected and indulged, which is kind of the worst combination. And um, and I had no. My mother was a lapsed Methodist. Later in life, she did um, become a very devout Catholic. My father was a Muslim, and um, he was from Egypt, and. They both passed away now, but um, but yeah. So I had a very tumultuous, chaotic childhood. My mother was a good housekeeper, but she didn't teach me anything. She was uh, the typical harried, overworked, divorced mom, like yeah. just like in whatever your image is, that's what she was. And and she and I didn't have much. I was an only child, and so. Um, you know, and but at the same time, I did go to a, a public school in those times. So I was a young girl in the 60s, and public schools were still very good. And especially in that um, education was really held up, and I happened to be good in school. And so that was an outlet for me. I read a lot. Um, so that was the saving grace. Because and my mother loved mm-hmm. beauty, and my father did too, actually. So it was like I ha- I didn't have all the practical things. I wasn't taken care of, but there were were these little glimmerings of beauty and light, and mainly through things I read, and that was how I eventually found God. 
Wow. I know later on we're going, I think we're going to meander through that a little bit, but you just said so much right there, whether it was how you fell in love with books, good literature. And also, did you say your dad was Muslim and your mom was at that time lapsed Methodist, but she then later became devout Catholic? Right. Yes. Wow. And so here. And so. I mean, she was just an atheist. She was just, okay. she was someone caught up in the psychological um, theories that were rampant and, you know, pursued, you know, pretty self-destructive things. So, and I was just kind of running along behind, trying to be a little girl. Yeah, and feminism in there as well, which, again, yeah. you know, we see, I think, <clears throat> even when you look at third wave feminism, how devastatingly effective it's been when it comes to, and, and obviously I mean that in a, in a negative way as far as the family and the home, because even in yeah. families where children grew up ostensibly with traditional roles, still it seems like homemaking can be looked down upon and it really needs to be restored as this beautiful nobility because it is a holy vocation. And so this work, this three volume, I think is a beautiful uh, pedagogy of the home that you bring forth and what it looks like. Because again, you wrote this not because you had the roadmap, but because you carved the way with the help of the Holy Spirit and much grace. So how, I mean, starting there with the, the baked in impacts of feminism, how can we begin to restore the dignity of the work of the home? Well, um, yeah, I think that it is vitally important, first of all, for women to just acknowledge their deepest longings and not to continue along this path of being, um, of accepting what people say with those thought-stopping phrases and, um, I mean, almost to the level of cultic control because women, when they are, when their guard is down, they admit that they do want to be taken care of. They do want to have children. They do love the idea of making a home, even if they have no idea of how to go about it. That would describe me for sure. And, um, and I think that it's not just that it's not just that it's a great calling and a holy vocation that all of those things are true, but it's also just, so vitally important. We cannot look around and say, uh, lament and moan and decry all the things that we see without, we, I, I, I mean, I guess the first thing is I, I, I feel like, listen, let's stop whining. Let's stop having self-pity. Let's say there is a job to be done here. And that job is that children need to be raised in homes intact homes with their biological mothers and fathers as much as is humanly possible. They, we have to move mountains to, to make that happen. We cannot voluntarily oversee the destruction of this fundamental unit of society, this blessed institution that's given by God from the very beginning for the very purpose of transforming the world. And women... Women, we women have a tendency to kind of indulge in a lot of self-pity. It's part of our nature because the perfection of our nature is to nurture and to, to be understanding and to see things 
um, from other people's point of view. But the defect of that is that that we can sometimes just get bogged down in it and not realize that we also have to rise up and and do something. And the thing is that um, that we are right now almost beyond the point of no return, and uh, we are kind of sheltering ourselves from the realities of how um, we've come to accept that almost as a given that children will not be raised by their own parents. And yet we also look around and see how desperately unhappy children are, how mm. they've even descended into self-destruction, how, um, how unhappy women are and how unhappy men are. And, What's the point of that? I mean, we have it within our power if we can simply overcome this sense of grievance and conflict, we have it within our power to bring peace. And I mean, there's a whole side of it for men because men also have something that they have to live up to in their natures. Right. But if, if I'm just talking to women, I just want to say there is a job to be done and it is to make a home. And there is no question that every single person if we hear the most terrible story, the most the tale of woe of some adult, and we hear all the devastation that he went through or whatever, what's our first thought? Our first thought is, if only when he was a child, there was a loving place, a place where people loved him, would correct him, but with affection. Well, yes, that John Paul II said, all of humanity passes through the family. So every single person needs that nurturing. And why why have we abandoned this glorious task? I don't understand it. So I went through the whole thing of wanting to do all those things, but simply not knowing how. And instead of leaving, I, I just kind of thought, well, if I can help some people not reinvent the wheels <laughs> of how practically how you do this because i think a big component of feminism a big driving force to keep feminism in motion is the fear that women have of being at home and um, there's a lot of propaganda that goes along with that as oh you know you're alone with a three-year-old child i remember one time uh the wonderful midge doctor was recounting um something that gloria Steinem had said about uh how you know, oh, women stay home with, and ha- are consigned to speak to only three-year-olds and how how horrible that is, you know, for their intellect and everything. And Midge Spector in her inimitable style said, I would rather spend the rest of my life speaking only to a three-year-old than five minutes alone with Gloria Steinem. <laughs> <laughs> and I just thought, what a wonderful, spirited thing to say. And... Um, at the time, I did have a three-year-old, and so that just gave me a lot of hope. <laughs> Man, there's so much. I know we have to take a break, but what I feel you're saying there is how we choose to see the work of the home will determine how we carry out that work. Right. And that's huge because, like you said, there is a lot of propaganda. There's a lot of malformation. And we might not even realize it ourselves. And so we're going to take a quick break. Lila Marie Lawler is with us talking about the Summa Domestica, this beautiful three-volume work, even with the silk 
uh, bookmark that's in the each volume. We're going to dig into the pages a little bit more, but when we come back, I want to talk about two obstacles when it comes to the way of homemaking. And every generation is different. We have more conveniences than our parents did. Things, the culture, rules, things are a little bit different, but those bedrock things that continue to be the heart of the family, mom, dad, and prayer and the things that should matter most are so beautifully articulated in this work. So we'll take a quick break. Lila Marie Lawler is with us. It's Brooke Taylor in for Timory. She has a day off. This is trending. If you have a question for Lila, one 914 if you want to join the conversation or connect. Back in a moment here on Relevant Radio and the app. Stay with us. Housekeeping still remains the most important business of the world. It engages the hearts and minds of more people and calls for higher qualities than any other occupation. Each woman faces it single-handed. She must know how to cook, know food. She must know how to set her table attractively. Vintage Homemakers tutorial right there. It's Brooke Taylor in for Timory. Welcome back to Trending. What do you feel when you hear that? I imagine that in different circles that might induce all sorts of different emotion. I appreciate it because it's practical and useful. But, you know, these days you don't hear. We don't, I don't even think, have home ec that much anymore or kind of the domestic sciences. But that's what we're talking about. And so much more than that. Lila Marie Lawler is my guest this hour. And we're talking about the Summa Domestica, Order and Wonder in Family Life. It's a three- volume series that series it's it's one set but i think good for weddings for everyone on the bookshelf just such a beautiful work lila you say there are two obstacles when it comes to the way of homemaking and i love this again because so much of your book is personal funny stories things that you share experiences And the first thing that obstacle you talk about is the loss of collective memory. That's been a big lesson that I feel like you've taught me and so many others. Can you explain that a little bit? Sure. Well, I mean, I have always been surprised at meeting women who just intuitively know how to do certain things. And, or maybe it's not intuitive. Maybe it's precisely this, that they don't, think it through rationally because they have been handed down by their mother and their grandmother before her and they just know how to do certain things that took me really a lot of English to figure out and that got me to thinking well yeah any culture is just the passing along of of memories the passing along of of um, skills and they think that you know, we probably think about the memory, the the story part of it or what have you, although I think we've broken with a lot of our literature and art, almost all of it, our music. Um, but a lot of it also is just ways of doing things. And so there are things like, you know, how to make dinner for a lot of people and you find yourself with a bunch of kids and is it chaos or do you just know how to produce a meal without knocking yourself out and 
making it beautiful and tasty and also simple and whatever the occasion demands. So, yeah, that collective memory or even just um, having the knowledge of how to teach children, having the knowledge of what kinds of things to pass along and what kinds of things maybe aren't that important. And even the memory, the collective memory of knowing how husband and wife could get along without us being in conflict, knowing how to take care of teenagers, things like that. Those kinds of things were built into culture and now they're lost. And so I kind of have appointed myself as the reminder of all of those things. I'm certainly not the only one, but I feel like a lot of people are hungry to be told exactly what to do. And it's funny because sometimes I'll think, well, should I really post about this? Like how to set the family table? And I'll see images, um, what have you on Instagram of great homesteaders or, you know, people who are really working hard to produce their food, um, beautiful, wonderfully homegrown things. But then they sit down at the table and everybody's just kind of sitting at a bare table and they dig in. And I think to myself, well, maybe people do kind of need to be told that what if you had folded napkins and a child could certainly be given that chore? What if you had candles that you lit? What if you said grace before you started eating? Those are just little homey touches that make family life beautiful and loving, and yet they've really been forgotten. Yeah, and the description of the collective memory is so good, and it relates to so many different things. Of course, as you're perfectly explaining and looking at mother to daughter or grandmother, if you were blessed to have that instruction and that modeling, but also for for boys, for men, for jobs. And you have a fantastic book I am going to just mention because you talk about it in God Has No Grandchildren, which is a look at Pius XI's encyclical Casti Canubi, which is on chaste marriage. But you say that, I'm just going to read a quote right in the first introduction, and that we begin to speak of the wisdom that comes only from experience, wisdom that once lost is hard to recover. The Catholic Church is the longest lasting and best guardian of the uh, collective memory there is. And just today, I was talking to my mom. She's going to be turning 80 next week, and she grew up on a farm, and she was saying, you know, we all had a chore. We all had something to do. And because of that, there weren't a whole lot of arguments because they just, she said, I just wanted to help. They had a large family and she talked about getting the water in every day. And the, Mm -hmm. um, it sounds like she lived in the 1800s. She didn't, but they did have a lot of chores like that. So she knew how heavy water was to carry and pushing the wheelbarrow. And so some of these things, I don't think we do anymore just because the culture and our technologies and our ease of different appliances have changed but I do think the premise is still the same and the way the oh, family yeah. operates. It, she said it was shared, and I was glad to be able to do that. So as you're talking about even setting the table, I think it's important to emphasize we're not just talking about the externals, trying to have some sort of beautiful magazine home, but more of, again, the approach, the little flower, the little way, doing extraordinary things. I'm sorry, ordinary things with extraordinary love. And that well, really... Yes, and just- to have to have that, I mean, actually, that perfect magazine image is the enemy of what I'm talking yeah. about because I think many people can pull it out for guests or what have you. But again, they're sitting down to eat, and it's 
they're not even saying grace, they haven't lit a candle. And to me, it's kind of like, what is our life together if not marked with this ordinary beauty? And so to me, I think that I, as a mother and a wife, will be much more affirmed in my role if I feel that I'm bringing something creative and something that little, yes, ordinary, but also um, special touch to what I'm doing out of love. And I'm, I don't hesitate to ask whoever's around to give me a hand. And I certainly don't hesitate to assign to children um, their part and all the while instructing them we're in this together and we do it out of love. For instance, I'll tell you, um, the children will learn about the hierarchy of, of being, the hierarchy of the universe, and especially the hierarchy of the family, which is a life-giving thing. If they are attentive to their father and at the dinner table, if they, they are trained to look around to see who needs what, and when their father is done with his dinner, of course, the children clear their own place, but somebody can go get dad's plate. Dad isn't one of the children to clear his plate just like everybody else. A good dad will. He'll want to help and clean up and everything, but the loving family is saying to him, you worked hard, let us clear for you. And then the wonderful thing that comes from that is then the dad is able to relax in his chair and then the conversation starts. And that is so essential and vital for when the children are older that they are used to having a conversation at the dinner table with their parents. If the father isn't respected and made to feel comfortable, well, he'll just go off and worry about work. He won't enjoy his family. But it's the mother, the wife, who provides that atmosphere. But, you know, it's all comprised of these little, these little practical things that I try to show exactly what they are. Yeah, and you said a few things there. You said beauty. And also, as you're describing this, you sense presence. Everyone is present to each other, to what's going on. So often dinners either are fragmented. And again, depending on different stages of life, sometimes you'll have that. But it does seem like there is an attentiveness that is very deliberate as well. Well, you know that I say I have a whole section in the book about dinner together. And as far as I'm concerned, if the family is going to survive, the the things that we have to emphasize are the unity of the husband and the wife, the the um, the sanctity of their marriage, and the importance, the extreme importance of the dinner table. And so, yeah, I have a whole section about it from like advice about how to handle the fact that you have, you know, maybe four children under the age of six and how are you, how is this not going to be a circus with monkeys to all the way to, well, now my older, my teenagers who drive are off at their job. Do we still have dinner together? Um, you know, with the younger children. And so I address all of those issues because I actually think that if we prioritize the two things, if we prioritize dinner together at least four times a week, And one of those days being Sunday, because the second thing is that we make Sunday a day of rest, worship, rest, and celebration, that then we will restore, we will restore the culture, that those two things are the foundation of the culture. 
I love it. I see now all of the, again, this is three volumes. So I feel like this has been such a blessed retreat for my own vocation as wife and mother, sharing little excerpts with my husband and my children. But I didn't see those. You do. You have uh, menu planning. You have 12 things to stash that will help you get uh, supper on the table. But also I love this because you're talking about the secret to planning menus and having peace in the home and whether that is light a candle. It's amazing to me when you dim the lights and light a candle, how effective that is. And I know you're really big with lights, like real lights as well. Mm -hmm. Not like garish uh, lights. Oh yeah. So, well, don't even get me started. (laughs) um, As far as I'm concerned, if people are depressed, and anxious and don't understand why they can't make their houses look beautiful, I will just say, replace your LEDs in your living areas with incandescent bulbs. You can do it. You can figure it out and you have to do it. And if you can't, you just need to turn off those LEDs and light candles because it is making us all super duper depressed. And uh, But there are so many things. There are so many things in life that come about because we've attended to the practical matters yeah, And we'll just be happier. I mean, we'll just be happier if I think the women would be a lot happier if we stop being in conflict with our duties and just kind of said, yeah, I mean, actually, I'm happier when I wash the kitchen floor. So let me just do it or assign it to a 16 year old teenager who's lounging around. Like, let's just get it done. And then we'll have just a much healthier attitude. And that, really, it comes down to that, it comes down to that, are we really satisfied with this way of looking at life that is we're all in conflict with each other, that we're all snapping at each other, that we think, well, how could, how could someone have, someone I love, someone who I freely married, nobody forced you to marry this person, but all of a sudden, every interaction is one of basically a war of all against all. How did we get to that point? Marriage is supposed to be a cooperation, a complementary relationship. We're supposed to be forming a home, a household where we are free to pursue our creativity precisely because there is a hierarchy and there is a cooperation amongst the people. So there's the father, he's the head, the mother is the heart. There is a wonderful dynamic where there is an understanding of how decisions are made. The husband really needs his wife, respects her. It ends up after years of marriage, the husband will be seen to rely on his wife's judgment. And she is pursuing virtue, and so she is worthy of that. But she has put all her trust in her husband and sees him as the leader in the head. This is so vital for the children. Then they flourish. When things are peaceful this way, they flourish. It's vital. It's properly ordered. It's beautiful. But yet, so seldom do we hear what you're saying with such clarity and truth. And our heart feels it. And what you Mm. said, stop being in conflict with our duties. That is so key. And going back again to the beauty aspect, 
I know that's part of your story in being evangelized in a sense, because you have a very personal retelling. You talk about what you call my awakening, which details in experience. You go to camp in the mountains of North Carolina, you're 13, and you're contemplating these deep, deep issues like women's rights, abortion, contraception, but also at the same time, reading classic literature, which I know you have a whole book on education and books and beautiful stories and fairy tales. But in the middle of all of this, in your 13-year-old self, you observe a mother, a beautiful woman, her six children, and you realize this is right and good and beautiful. There it is. And that is what I want. And I mean, I'm just Mm -hmm. thinking for you to recall such a specific moment, this movement in your interior life that you could latch onto, that must have been a Mm -hmm. profound grace. It was really amazing. And when I tell you that we were in the back of a truck that had hay in it and we were being carted up a mountain (laughs) to have a picnic at the top of the mountain. It was the hayride to get up there, but it wasn't like a hayride in an open wagon. It was like literally in the back of a truck and um, in a box truck, not a pickup truck. So we were inside a truck and I'm sitting in the hay and, you know, it was my father um, and my stepmother would go to this family camp in the mountains of North Carolina. And, um, you know, that was a great experience for me in many ways, nature and, and the fun of the camp and everything. But I was so unhappy because of my family life. And to just see this woman who paid no attention to me whatsoever, why would she, why would she, you know, these people speaking Arabic and, um, and this little girl, I'm sure is very disheveled. I'm sure I did not present very well and uh, she had her kids and she was just so beautiful and so at peace with them and I did I looked at I just looked at them and I just thought even if they never spoke to me I would know that they have something that I want Mm -hmm. and they didn't speak to me but I knew that and it was just an image it was a fleeting image but I always knew in my heart even though I you know all through college all through well I mean I get married when I was in college, but like all up until going to college, I was saying that I would be a career woman and have, because I grew up in a very feminist um, atmosphere and I was always told, including by my Muslim father, that I would go to graduate school. The best thing would be to be a professor. Like you have to be independent. So that's what I was going to do. But God had different ideas, I guess. (laughs) And like you said, there there was just you observing and seeing a beauty that that pierced your heart in a way that you traced it back to the source. And I know you also mm-hmm. talk about Mulieris Dignitatum and the, the dignity of women, which is the, the apostolic letter from St. John Paul II. So, and I think that actually, in addition to the immense resources for Lent here on Relevant Radio and your books, what that would be a really beautiful reflection for women to be reminded, I think, of the nobility of their vocation. But that seemed like it played a role at that time for you or later on? When I, later on, when I was a young mother. But the thing is that women really have to actually read that document, yeah. not read what is written about it, because um, people have made John Paul into a feminist, but actually in that book they will see, or that letter, they will see that he is, he is very deep about what it is that a woman has, what what her gift is, and that it is very much bound up with um, the the motherhood and the the nurturing that she gives to the child, and the 
the fact that the child is utterly dependent on her within the constellation of the marriage and the relationship between the husband and the wife. And he carries that beyond into spiritual motherhood, and he, make, he makes the connection between um, a very natural and biological and very earthy relationship that can't be denied to a more transcendent one. And even for the biological mother, there also has to be this spiritual motherhood. And then, of course, there are consecrated women who, who only have the spiritual part of it, but it is embedded in our nature. And that cannot be denied. And the thing is that to be very frank and open and honest, and if we are just honest about it, feminism does deny that yeah. and does set aside motherhood as not an intrinsic part of what it means to be a woman. And he really is saying the opposite of that. And I think if one reads it attentively to his words without fear, um, the message will come through and it's a very beautiful message because it has to do with with our role in forming the world for good. And without mothers, there, there will just be an onslaught of power that overcomes us and to which we will be subject as slaves. And so uh, this is why I do really exhort women to just be spirited and take on this task. I have a few t-shirts already uh, forming the world for good and stop being in conflict with our duties. So I'm going <laughs> to screen print those because those are both such great quotes that are true, easy to remember, and important to absorb and appreciate because sometimes we really need to fall in love again with our vocation. And there's, you know, especially in different stages of motherhood, there's a lot of redundancy, but therein is the glory and the beauty. And again, the the little way that uh, sanctifies and mm-hmm. has so much grace. So we're, we're up against a break. When we come back, I want to get into uh, maybe some final takeaways for, as we talk about the Summa Domestica, order and wonder in family life for everyone. Lila Marie Lawler is a wife, mother of seven, grandmother. She lives in central Massachusetts. So blessed to be with her for this hour. And we are discussing her three-volume work, The Summa Domestica. Back with more after the break. It's Brooke Taylor in for Timory. This is Trending. We'll be right back. Once we learn to pray, the lines stay forever. Our Father, who art in heaven, hail Holy Queen, remember our most gracious Virgin Mary. It's a wide and tremulous world, and there's no corner of it that doesn't need prayer, reverence for God, and a stable family life. That is the warm, the paternal voice of Father Patrick Payton there, speaking with actress Jeannie Crane on what then was known as family theater and the beauty of the family that prays together. The family that prays together stays together, as he would always say, as Father Rocky says. And that's an invitation to join us at the top of the hour for this Lenten Friday family rosary across America. It is Brooke Taylor in for Timory. Thank you for being here. Welcome back to Trending. Lila Lawler has been with us for the hour, and we've been discussing her work, The Summa Domestica, a three-volume book, uh, three books, Order and Wonder in the Family Life. And, and Lila, that clip there, I feel like it really brings 
us to the heart of what we've been talking about this whole hour, your own life's work as well, that faith leads us to transfiguration. And it occurs every day, most times in the hidden life, in the home, as we live out our vocation, whatever that may be. And and when we grasp the incredible beauty of that, there's no way we can stay lukewarm, that we're called to be blazing and unshakable and strong and alive. And so we just have a, a few minutes left, but we started out at the top of the show sharing a little bit of your background, your story, which includes feminism and secular humanism and, you know, being the only child of a divorce for a while, doubting the existence of God for a point, I think. What would you say to, to that young Lila or your 12 year old self today, looking back and maybe others out there who are in that mindset? Maybe something really key that you want them to know. Well, uh, I think that if we really look at life, I, I don't know what I would say to the younger me because I think I had to go through all the experiences yeah. that I went through to, as I get older, I realize, well, yeah, it seems really unfair and hard, but I couldn't have the empathy that I have for people in the situations they're in without having had those experiences. Yeah. I am the kind of person who does actually have to experience something before I even can see it elsewhere. Unfortunately, I'm not very good at <laughs> at understanding people otherwise. So I think that God really was working with me, you know, with just who I am. And um, so I had to go through all the things as hard as they were. And, um, you know, I well, I would say that I think the moral life is the life that we need. We need to be virtuous. We need God because only He is good. And so we in our fallen nature have to be united with him or we will not be able to participate in his goodness. And the whole thing, the whole, all of this writing got started because of homeschooling and me homeschooling my kids and then people coming and asking me about it. And, you know, what was I going to do? Talk to them for three hours about all my theories and everything and experiences, you know, that's a little much. So I eventually thought I need to just start writing things down. And I have a whole section in the third volume, um, sorry, the second volume, which is on education, a whole section on the moral education of children. And that clip that you played, I think really goes to that of like what, you know, all the things that, that we as parents hope for and long for and do it's all pointed towards this that we want our children to be good we want them to learn things we there's there's our our natural the natural man we have to learn to read and write and we have to understand numbers we have to understand the world around us all those things are good but they all need to be pointed towards being a moral person and that starts for every person in the womb and it continues And it continues when they're born, when they're in their mother's arms. As soon as the person is born, it's a time it begins the process of separation. And that separation has to take place in a context of love. And who is going to give that context except for the mother and the father? So that's what family life is. And I've tried my best to say, you know, to answer that question of how do I homeschool to say, well, there's this whole world you need to know about 
and um, there's also more to it yeah. than reading, writing, and arithmetic. And um, and how pivotal the mother is to all of this. So I would say, instead of being afraid of this task and having fear, and they think that that's what feminism does, it kind of instills fear in women about that and points them towards the safe path of, well, you know, work and let your boss tell you what to do and make money and then you'll be successful as opposed to kind of the free falling, whoa, I'll just be by myself at home. What will I do? But instead of that, gain competence. I'm not talking about perfection. I'm just talking about competence. And that's a lot of what I write about. And that, I think that fear is one big thing that holds women back. The second big thing, and it's a brutally practical thing that holds women back, is that because of the really brainwashing that's gone on, women are in debt. When they get married, they're in debt. And so they feel they have to work to pay off the debt. And that's all packaged in a in a rosy kind of following your dreams and making a mark on your world and all of these very flighty rhetorical flourishes. But it comes down to you have to work because you're in debt. Because you bought, your parents bought into sending you to expensive schools and all for the purpose of working, which left you not free. But what I'm, and I do in my third volume, I do have practical ways of getting out of debt. I'm not a financial mm-hmm. advisor by any means. Nobody should ever take much financial advice from me, but I do have a little bit that helped me. And the other thing is just more to the point is learning to live simply and being clever and using that intellect and that um, spiritedness to figure things out, how we are going to make it financially, living on one income, which is very, very important. If we stepped back and thought about things rationally, we would realize how insane it is for two people starting a life together to plan on living on two incomes because inevitably things will happen. The whole point of marriage is that one of the persons provides and that's the husband and one of the persons uses that provision, figures it out, manages it, is very clever and makes it all work. And that's how we work together. That's the cooperation and the complementarity. Yes, there are situations that work out differently, but the norm has to be that because of the man's nature that he provides and protects and that the woman's nature that she takes all that, whatever it is that he brings home and makes it into something useful. And we started out with Little House on the Prairie. And I always love when, when, um, you know, the, the family is, I mean, they're kind of just living on salt pork and cornbread and uh, <laughs> Charles says to mother, you know, Caroline, to Ma, um, oh, Caroline, you always make so, such good things. And she says to Charles, oh, Charles, you're such a good provider. And it's like, this is, this is how real marriages work. You know, we just appreciate each other. We do the best with what we have. Right. And we have complementary roles. And if we can kind of attack those two things to just aim for competence and to live simply within our means of, um, you know, using our smarts 
and really making the home, I think then we will see that we can uh, raise children who in turn will know how to live. And that's what we're here for. Yeah. And you know, there's so much there and I know we have to wrap up soon, but it is an adventure. And that I think is where the fear comes in. (laughs) Because when you think of an adventure, you don't know. What does that mean? Enjoy it. (laughs) Yes. But into that aspect of control, we, and I, you know, I think for men and women, so often we want to hold on to control and a little bit of that obviously is good routine and that sort of thing, but also the faith, the surrender and just the, 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 the sacrifice for one another. It's all in there in virtue, in prayer, in God's grace. We only have about 30 seconds left, Lila, but I want to make sure again to share the Summa Domestica order and wonder in family life is out. It's available now, but also like mother, like daughter, is that the best place to connect with you? Yep, like motherlikedaughter.org is where I blog. And um, this, my books are on Amazon, so you can find me there too. So, thank you. Sophia Institute Press. Yep, thank you so much. We will. I, we appreciate the last hour. Again, you can get that now. Lila Lawler, God bless you. Blessed Mother, Queen of Heaven, Our Lady of Guadalupe, pray for us and pray for all of our mothers. The Family Rosary Across America with Father Rocky is next. God bless you. Have a great weekend.